anyone still looking for a seat? We've got the front row left. A lot of concerts, this is worth a ton of money. In church, <laughs> no one wants to sit there. Uh, okay, so before we drive into something very, wow, look at that. Uh, if you have kids, you go straight out, you turn to your left, what looks like an alley actually leads to a very sweet space, so don't be afraid. Um, before we get started, Tyler and Haley are here with Baby Eden. <laughs> Woohoo! Did anyone, now Scouts Honor, did anyone guess Eden? Oh, Sam gets $100. So if one of you wants to pay her, that would be awesome. I think that was the deal, right? If anyone, Chris said, okay, when he gets back, Let's just say we all guessed it, and he has to pay all of us $100. Okay. Um, Tyler and Haley, how, how old is baby Eden now? Three weeks. He's very cute. My daughter attacked him yesterday, but he's a strong one, so way to go. Um, very excited to have you guys back. We saved you a spot right here, so there you go. Um, all right, I'm going to call up Moses Comer to read our scripture tonight. Woo! Make it good, okay? I'll try my best. I doubt it. Uh, please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 9, verse 14 through 27. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them, and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about, he asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son, who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground, he foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, How long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into a fire or water to kill him. But, it, but if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said. I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. See what you have to look forward to? It's a lot of work in between that and that, though. Good evening, everyone. Great to see you. Hey, before we start in, let's just have a moment of silence to just open up your heart to God to receive all that he would have from you, for you from Mark 9 or whatever thoughts I have to pass along.
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we welcome you as you welcome us. I would invite all of you in the room to just, if it's helpful, take a moment and just almost imagine like a door deep in the center of your being. Call that your heart or your spirit or whatever. Imagine just opening it to Jesus. Imagine his face, his smile, his demeanor. And whatever language is appropriate in the quiet of your heart, just welcome him into the deepest center of your being. Jesus, we welcome you not as a guest, but as the master of the house. We love how the stories we read of you in the Gospels, wherever you went for dinner, you were always the host. And so would you host us at the table tonight? We open all that we are to all that you are, and we pray that ancient prayer of the prophet Samuel, speak, Lord for your servant is listening. Amen. The Catholic writer Michael O'Brien, in his novel Island of the World, which is about the protagonist is a Bosnian man named Joseph, who is living through several decades of just horror after horror in communist Yugoslavia. And at one point, there's a strange interaction with a mysterious figure kind of on the side of the road, no name, no description. It's kind of like an angelic visitation. And the angel-like figure says this, in your life, Joseph, you will have much to fear. In time, you will come to a length of days and wisdom and goodness. You will suffer and this suffering will bring much good to others. I do not understand what you are saying. You do not need to understand. Only remember, you will be afraid, but do not be afraid. What can this mean? Tell me what it means. You will be afraid, but when you are afraid, do not be afraid. I am essentially living through a freely chosen midlife crisis. <laughs> After just shy of 20 years of church planting and pastoring up in Portland, Oregon, I stepped down from the lead pastor role to start a new nonprofit. And we moved down here uh, just a few months ago to do a family gap year and be close to Chris and Merrill and these two over here that we kind of sort of like. And uh, it's been wonderful, but also a very hard season for us. And we're planning on moving again this summer, and we're pretty much sure where, but not 100%. And any other planners in the room? For those of us that don't have Chris Veenan's faith and personality, that's a bit hard. And uh, so, as you can imagine, pretty much any fear that could come up has come up in my heart. Now, we all, no matter what your personality type is or stage of life you're in, we all have fear that we carry in our bodies. Fear is simply the anticipation of evil. 
And God designed a fear impulse into our nervous system as an act of love to keep you and I from harm and even from death. Studies have been done on people who, due to a traumatic brain injury, have lost the brain's capacity for fear, which sounds wonderful, right? The stories are not of bliss, but of misery. But whether you ascribe to Christian theology or evolutionary biology or some kind of a mishmash of the two, it's no secret that something has gone deeply wrong in our body's relationship to fear. I have come to believe, my kind of working theory is, that fear is at the root of almost all of our problems in the spiritual life. And here's, why, here's my logic. Love is the telos, uh, as Aristotle would say. It's the end goal of the spiritual journey, to become a person who is pervaded by love as defined by Jesus himself through union with Jesus. As it is written in the New Testament in that beautiful line, there is no what? Fear in love, because perfect love casts out fear. And I think the link there between fear and love is, as long as we need our life to go a certain way, we will, despite our best intentions, act in ways that are unloving to anyone or anything that gets in our way. Because we have to have you fill in the blank. Therefore, fear is at the root of all sin. And faith is, at some level, the ultimate solution to all of our problems. Early on in the pandemic, someone in the American South coined the phrase, faith over fear. And Orange County is kind of like the American South. <laughs> it's kind of like this weird mishmash of LA and Texas. I still can't quite figure that one out. And uh, God bless them, but somehow that, you know, whatever the intention was behind it, that became a rally cry for the anti-lockdown movement. And as a result, it just became more polarizing language in the culture wars. Now, you may love that phrase, you may hate it. You may uh, think it's demonic, you may have it on your bumper sticker out back. That is between you and Dana. I have no <laughs> cat in the game. I'm not referring to where you fall on the left-right spectrum, but how far you or I are along on our spiritual journey. The theologian and psychologist Benedict Rochelle summarizes the entirety of the spiritual journey in Jesus as a decrease in fear and an increase in faith. As a gradual shift over decades, not years, not months, over a lifetime, from what Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount called anxious care to a deep, peaceful, genuine trust in Jesus. And that's essentially what faith is. The word that's translated faith in the New Testament is pistis in Greek. Pistis is one of a constellation of Greek words that uh, linguists call, that are inside kind of what linguists call a semantic domain, which is meaning kind of like a range of meaning. Words like faith, belief, trust, confidence, reliance, allegiance, and faithfulness. All these words orbit around this center of gravity of pistis or faith which is best defined as confidence grounded in reality. Faith is not a blind leap into the dark, contrary to popular opinion. It's not believing something for which there is no evidence, but believing something based on evidence. Uh, one of my favorite definitions or sayings is from Elton Trueblood, who was the, uh, the chaplain at Stanford for many years. He said this, faith is not belief without proof, but trust without reservations. 
Faith is not a feeling either, though it has an emotional component. When we have faith in someone, we trust them, we relax, we're at ease. But it's not a feeling primarily. And faith is certainly not just mental assent or believing something in your mind, which was the fatal flaw of the Protestant Reformation, which if you know anything about church history, redefines saving faith as believing the right doctrines about God and the Bible. And while I'm very, uh, very much agree that believing the right ideas about God and scripture are of utmost importance, that is not faith. Faith is something, it is not just what you believe, it is an action. It is something you do in the language of the New Testament. You put your faith in God. And faith is at the center of our discipleship to Jesus and all of Christian spirituality to the point that we call our worldview the Christian faith a practice dating back to the New Testament itself where Paul writes, we are to keep, Peter writes to keep the faith. Paul writes about the one faith and how you delivered and received the faith. And the first thing you need to understand about faith is that it is not a religious thing, it is a human thing. We all live by faith, it is impossible not to. Again, faith is just a sense of trust or reliance in someone or on something to navigate the turbulent waters of life. Um, for example, I have faith that my car will start when I walk out of here tonight and that it will get me home, that I won't get stranded. I have faith that my debit card will work to pick up gas on the way home so I won't get stranded yet again. I am a man of robust faith, if that makes sense. We all live this way. I'm living by faith and so are you, whether you are a disciple of Jesus or something radically at odds with that. Even at the meta level of the meaning and purpose of life, the question is not do you have faith, it's who or what do you put your faith in? Jesus or Richard Dawkins or uh, what is called science, which is actually just an interpretation of the data points of science from people with a certain persuasion, or your influencer of choice, or just your own intuition and street smarts. Here's the Christian philosopher James K.A. Smith, which if you've not read his work, oh, I can't say enough good about him. He writes, the question isn't whether you're going to believe, but who. It's not merely about what to believe, but who to entrust yourself to. And I love this. Do you really want to trust yourself? Do we really think humanity is our best bet? Do we really think we are the answer to our problems, we who've generated all of them? Hence, the invitation of Jesus is to put our faith in him, in all that he is, in his life, in his teachings, in the stories about him in the gospels, in his death on your behalf and on mine, in his resurrection, and in his return to make all things new. Now, one of the things that I regularly hear from people that are not yet followers of Jesus but are not hostile, they are drawn in a way to Jesus but just not there, is I hear people say, I just wish I had your faith. But here's the thing, faith is not something you have or do not have, it is something you grow in over time. Faith in uh, Christian theology is one of what we call the theological virtues along with hope and love. They are called the theological virtues for a reason. Theological because um, they have to do with God and they don't make, Christian faith does not make sense apart from God. And virtue, meaning again, faith is not a feeling, it is the shape of your inner woman or man. 
It is the kind of person you become over time as you apprentice under Jesus, a person with more and more faith or a growing sense of trust and reliance on Jesus. And like any virtue, patience or wisdom or courage or you fill in the blank, faith must be developed. Faith is kind of like a muscle. We grow it through a kind of resistance training. Like a baby, like little Eden here, who I'm sure is not quite as cut as Tyler. I've been surfing with the guy. He's doing quite well. Congratulations, Haley. (laughs) Eden has all of that potential in his DNA, but he does not have six-pack of anything. Not yet. There's no pectoral, there's nothing. His muscles are there, but there's no strength yet. They have to be developed. And you'll see him wrestle and struggle at first just to roll over, much less bench press his weight or whatever theoretical future is in his destiny. We often start weak in faith, and then every obstacle we face to trust in God is a chance to work out our faith muscle and grow stronger and stronger over time, or not. You see this on display in mature disciples of Jesus. You can imagine someone, and I hope you know some, and maybe you don't, that's okay. If not, pray that God would lead you into contact with one, but I hope you know a disciple of Jesus who's in their, I don't know, 80s or 90s and has been following Jesus two or three times as long as many of you have been alive. As a general rule, and there are exceptions, but as a general rule, they are some of the most relaxed, joyful, peaceful, at ease in their own bodies people you will ever know because they live with this unshakable conviction that everything will be okay, even if everything is not okay. They have, over many decades, traveled that spiritual journey from fear to faith. Now, the question I have for you tonight is what is the landscape of such a journey? I'm a firm believer in what uh, I would call spiritual cartography, which is just a pretentious name for the attempt to map the spiritual journey over the arc of a life. So it's the Christian analog to what psychologists would call stage theory. For an apprentice of Jesus, the goal is to plot yourself on such a map in order to better name Jesus' warnings and invitations along the way. You're not the first person to follow Jesus. Quite a few people have done it before you. And while they cannot give you an exact play-by-play so you can do it all perfect, they can pass down a lot of wisdom for you and I to navigate the road of life by. To that end, let me offer you a map for the development of faith. You could call this three levels of faith. This paradigm is not chapter and verse. It's not from Mark 9. Mark 9 is one example of what we're about to talk about. But I would argue you could overlay it over pretty much any biopic in scripture. Job would be a fantastic place to do it if we had more time. Moses, David, Paul, all sorts of options. Level one is what I would call the faith of religion. This is Job, if you're familiar with him, at the beginning of his story or Paul on the road to Damascus. I just read that this morning. It's where all of us start, the faith of religion. Now, the word religion gets a bad rap in evangelical circles. It's used a lot by Christians as a polemic against a particular kind of religion that is heavy on rules and light on the relationship, hence the kind of Christian cliche, it's not a religion, it's a relationship, which sounds so sweet, totally not true, but it sounds really nice, and I like the heart behind it. 
Religion is best defined as a set of beliefs that explain what life is about, who we are, how we got here, and how we should live. By this definition, all people are religious. Secular people, in particular progressives, are the most religious people I've ever known. I wish my Christian friends were as religious as they are. We can't not be religious. Our religion may be what is now called Christianity, or it may be Islam, or it may be politics, or social justice, or sports, or your career, or surfing, or whatever, you name it. But in discipleship to Jesus, the faith of religion is essentially a way of relating to God that is based on quid pro quo. So if I had to summarize it into a saying, it's if I, you fill in the blank, then God will fill in the blank. If I put my faith in Jesus, then I will go to the good place when I die. If I tithe, then God will bless me financially. If I don't have sex before marriage, then tonight I will meet an amazing future partner and we will have the best sex of our entire life on the other side of that. In, that was awkward. <laughs> Little too close to home for the age group in this church. Sorry about that. I've not been preaching for a while, I'm a bit rusty. In evangelicalism, the catchphrase for this first level of faith is biblical principles for living, which again is great. Just to set the record straight, I am all for biblical principles for living. But left unchecked, they can become an attempt to use God and insider knowledge of the way he wired the universe and the human soul in an attempt to engineer the circumstances of your life to your desired end, not his. They can become just another human attempt to minimize pain and maximize pleasure but under the guise of Christianity rather than Nietzsche. This is a book of Proverbs kind of level faith. Um, most people don't realize this, but contrary to the novelist Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code uh, a few minutes ago, there was very little controversy around the canonization of scripture because early on, for both now what we call the Old Testament and the New, there was a wide consensus around which writings had that special quality and which did not, as well as stringent criteria. But few Christians today are aware that one of the books that barely made it in, like one of the most controversial books, like should this be considered scripture or not, was Proverbs. Now, does that strike you as a little bit odd? I grew up in like a Proverbs of the day keeps the devil away kind of family. My dad's been reading a proverb a day since before I was born, and that's just his morning routine, and it's beautiful. If you've not read Proverbs, it is a beautiful compendium of wisdom literature. Here's why it almost did not make it into the Bible. If you read Proverbs as a book of general wisdom principles, it is an extraordinary repository of skill, skillful living, advice for skillful living. If you read it as a book of promises from God, it is painfully untrue. It's true about 80% of the time. But that 20% of the time will just destroy your faith. Lazy hands make for poverty, but diligent hands bring wealth. That's true most of the time. If you were an African American 200 years ago, if you're an African American recently, that's not a true statement. There's all sorts of other factors that would keep people from living into the general wisdom principle embedded there in scripture. So, it almost did not make it in. And at some point, if that's kind of where your faith is, 
Let me figure out what God has to say, navigate life, avoid pain, maximize pleasure. This formulaic approach to God will fail you. A crisis will come and God will not save you from it. Or you will do the right thing and instead of being rewarded, you will be punished. Or you will end a relationship that you know is not God's will for you and instead of meeting Dreamboat three days later, you will be lonely. Or you will go through a period of pain and suffering and you will have no idea where God is or what he is or is not doing in your life. When that crisis comes, again, not if, but when, and don't worry, the happy guy will be back next week. (laughs) But when that moment comes, you have three options. Option one is you step back in faith. Wow, Lord, have mercy on the child. Wow, I feel like we should just stop and pray. Um, Option one is you step back from faith, or in more biblical language, you fall away. Um, (laughs) Thanks, I'm not that funny. I'm appreciating a little levity help. I appreciate that. (laughs) Prophetic gift embedded in the child as well. Fantastic. You know, um, just thinking about the the number of 20-somethings in the room and 30-somethings, I would imagine you can count many people that you know or call friends or brothers and sisters who have gone down the route of what we're now calling deconstruction. That is a very complex phenomenon. There's all sorts of reasons behind that. Let me give you one, and I don't know if this is 20% of cases or 80%, but it's a lot. One cause behind the current trend, and I think that's the proper word, of deconstruction, is that many people never mature beyond the faith of religion. And as Jesus said, quote, when trouble or persecution, different things, trouble is a trial, a hardship, persecution is what we're experiencing culturally, praise God, not violence, but a cultural persecution for orthodox faith. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. So option one is you step back. Option two is you step aside. (laughs) This is a serious moment, all right? And you compartmentalize your faith. You kind of put God over here in the church box or the Genesis box or the morning box and the rest of your life over here and you just live with that dissonance. Of course, that's a form of denial, which will essentially numb your emotional experience of God and put you right into the state of nominal Christianity. Orange County is really the only place left on the West Coast where nominal Christianity is still a wide part of the culture. Much of it is this. People that went through their first crisis, religion failed them, and they haven't deconstructed. They've just got stuck. The same level of faith they were at 10 years ago, 20 years ago, whatever. And option three is you step up to the next level of faith, which is the faith of desperation. This is the faith that's called for in a crisis when the direct intervention of God is your only hope, when the diagnosis comes and it's a death sentence, when you get the phone call and it's worst case scenario, when your prayer is unanswered, when your plan falls through, your dream dies, your relationship is ended, when you have to admit it's a failure. 
It's the faith of the man in the story right here in Mark 9. He's at the breaking point. His son is demonized. He's exhausted every possible solution. It's been many years. He is at no control. That beautiful proverb, train up a child in the way they should go, and when they are old, they will not depart from it. That is not working for him. His only hope is a miracle. So what does he do? He goes to Jesus in faith, even though it is a very weak faith. Look again at verse 22. Um, If you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. I love Jesus, verse 23. If you can. Like he's just, like I just imagine like Jesus like with a chuckle there. You know, like if you can, like did you see what I did recently with the boys' lunch? Like if you can, he's coaxing the man up and out into faith. Everything is possible for one who believes, who trusts, or who has faith. All valid translations of the Greek. And the man, immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. You see, Jesus here is calling on this man to believe in the power of God and the possibility of life in the kingdom of God. As uncomfortable as I am with it, there is a reciprocal relationship between our level of faith and our experience of the release of God's power. John Wimber used to say, faith is spelled R-I-S-K, meaning if you want to grow in faith, if you want to see God move, if you want to open your life to God's power, you have to risk. You have to step out and risk, if nothing else, embarrassment. This man is risking heartache, yet another wave of disappointment, social stigma and an honor-shame culture. He's risking things getting worse, not better, and he's risking it all in the faith of desperation. Some of you are at this point tonight. Like you, Your only hope is a miracle. You don't need a great therapy appointment. I'm all for it. I do it on a regular basis. You don't need a nice little self-help book. You need the power of God to break through into your life. And you need to pray whatever you have. If what you have is just barely any faith, pray what you got, as the saying goes. Make the man's prayer your own. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Now, in this story, I wish we could just be done here like, and end with this idea. In this story, there is a happy ending. We just read it. The boy is set free, and I pray that for any of you in this situation or a similar one tonight. But before we're done, what if he wasn't? Hypothetical scenario. I'm not trying to mess with scripture here. Just imagine with me an alternate ending. What if the story, his story, ended like Jesus' story? We're in Jesus' moment of crisis when he prayed, Father, in the garden, take this cup from me. And if you've read that, make sure you understand what he is praying. He's asking to not go to the cross. I'll let you work that one out. And heaven was quiet. And then on the cross, what did he pray? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And instead of the audible voice like there was in Matthew 3 at the Jordan River, instead we read that the sky went black and he died in darkness. You see, there's an even higher level of faith than the faith of desperation, which is a bit hard to believe in the charismatic tradition of which we are all kind of a part because there's so much emphasis on stirring up faith in God to do the miraculous in our life which is good, I am 100% for it. 
as long as we remember that's still medium level faith. The highest level of faith is not, I believe that God can or will do this, that, or the other. The highest level of faith is what I would call the faith of surrender. This is where you aren't believing in God for any particular outcome, you're just believing in God. It's Jesus at the pinnacle of spiritual maturity saying or praying, not my will, but what? Yours be done. Job at the end of his story. Remember this line? My eyes have seen the Lord. Now I repent in dust and ashes. No more questions. No more demands. No more angry tirade at, you know, the sky. How could you? Just silence, dust. You are God. I am not. It's Paul in prison waiting for a verdict from Rome that will either set him free or behead him. For me to live is Christ, anybody know? To die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, it will be more fruitful for you. But what can I say? My prayer is simply that, quote, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Now, this doesn't mean that you don't have desires for a particular outcome. All of us do. I sure as heck do. Um, And it's not bad to pray those desires. All of us desire to minimize pain and maximize pleasure. It means that we are not emotionally attached to our desires. And just give me a minute to suss that out. The struggle with what psychologists would call attachment or what some Christians would call idolatry is at the root of all our fear. It's the ball and chain that is holding us in the prison of fear and back from the freedom of faith. As the saying goes, our anxieties reveal our attachments, meaning whatever it is that we worry about or we ruminate on or we toss and turn thinking about at night or we get stressed about reveals what Thomas Keating called our emotional programs from happiness. Whatever strategy you develop, likely at an unconscious level, likely when you were a little baby it began, you began to develop some way of being in the world where if I, this is my strategy to, to defend myself from fear and to be happy. And at first it feels safe and then you realize it's the safety of a prison. Our attachments, or if you prefer our idols, promise us peace and happiness, but they give us anxiety and heartache. The Indian Jesuit writer Anthony DeMillo said it this way, if you look carefully, you will see that there is one thing that causes unhappiness. The name of that thing is attachment. What is an attachment? It is an emotional state of clinging caused by the belief that without some particular thing or some person, you cannot be happy. An attachment is not a desire. It is an emotional state of clinging to a desire. It's not wanting something, marriage or a different job or a new city or whatever. It's needing that thing to be okay. And the reason that our attachments cause us such misery and fear is because all of our attachments, no matter how good they are, can and at some point will be stripped away if not by a crisis or betrayal or failure or a global pandemic or recession or layoffs, if nothing else, by old age and death. Everything that is now your life will eventually disappear. The paradox of Jesus' teaching is, as long as you need your life to go a certain way to be happy and at peace, you will never be happy 
and at peace. Therefore, one way to think of the spiritual journey in Jesus is as a, as a slow burning off of our attachments to all that is not God. The final state of which is, um, it's hard to translate. Ancient Christians had this word, they called it apatheia, really hard to translate into English. We can translate it as peace or tranquility. It's that calm you see on the face of your elderly grandmother who's been following Jesus for 72 years. There's something there. There's a calmness. There's a repose. There's a faith and a trust in God. Another translation of apatheia is this word detachment, which is the opposite of attachment, not an emotional clinging, but an emotional letting go. Of course, detachment in the Christian tradition is different than in Buddhism, where the aim is the negation of all desire. In Christian spirituality, it's the reordering of our desire to seek first the kingdom of God in Jesus' language. Desire is not all bad in Christian thought. It's like the engine of our life driving us forward into our destiny in God, into God himself. The problem is not that we have desires, it's that our desires are all out of whack. Augustine said we have disordered desires. Our problem, he said, is not that we desire, it's that we either desire the wrong things or we desire the right things but in the wrong order. That was his summary of everything that's wrong with the human condition. And detachment is a reordering of those desires onto God and his kingdom at the first. It's that old saying, you know, the word priority was singular. There was not a plural version of the word priority until like 1947 or something like that. So only Americans talk about priorities. It's a myth. You can only have one priority singular. It can be your work, it can be your body, it can be your image, it can be your Instagram account, or it can be following Jesus of Nazareth. Detachment is how does every other desire come under that of union with God. Dr. Robert Mulholland defined detachment as a deep inner posture of joyful release of our life and being to God in absolute trust, without demands, without conditions, without reservation. It is neither a passive resignation nor a fatalistic acquiescence to whatever comes. It is, rather, a consistent posture of actively turning our whole being to God so that God's presence, purpose, and power can be released through our lives into all situations. Or if you want to just turn that into a prayer, not my will, but yours be done. This, this is the highest level of faith. Not faith that everything will work out perfectly, but that no matter what happens, even if our worst fears come true, we are with Jesus and everything will be okay, even if it's not okay. We do not need to be afraid. To recap, level one, the faith of religion. Level two, the faith of desperation. Level three, the faith of surrender. Now, in just a moment before I end, how do we mature in our faith? We would be remiss to not take a moment for that. Well, this is a gross oversimplification, but whether it comes to faith or any other 
character trait in the way of Jesus. We mature in two basic ways through what our spiritual ancestors long before us called active spirituality and passive spirituality. That's ancient language, not modern, so it sounds a little weird and even off-putting, but I find it very helpful. Active spirituality is where it feels like, psychological language, not theological, it feels like you and I take the initiative. Like if we don't do it, it won't happen. Like the spiritual disciplines. I read my Bible this morning. I know that was a work of grace at a theological level, but I also kind of feel at a psychological level like I read my Bible this morning. I didn't feel like I was an autotom. I was like, wow, look at me reading my Bible. I got up and I read my Bible. And I was behind, so I had to catch up in my reading. And uh, so it was beautiful. And uh, I kind of felt like if I did not do it, it likely would not, would not have happened. Passive spirituality is where it feels more like God takes the initiative. So if, if active, the spiritual disciplines are our part in our spiritual formation, passive spirituality is God's part in our spiritual formation. All we can do is cooperate and surrender or resist and rebel. At an active level, there are a few things we can do to grow in faith. Very simply, one, step out in faith. Risk a little. Live a little. Faith is spelled risk. Is there a small thing you feel like the Spirit is stirring you to do that you can trust God for this week? Micro. Don't think macro. Think tiny habits. Think micro. Think something really small. Think text your neighbor. Think, I mean, whatever the Spirit of God is stirring in your heart. Just do it and see what happens. Let God grow your faith. Second, practice gratitude. Gratitude is one of the best ways to overcome fear because gratitude is the practice of being present to the goodness of God in the moment. Whereas fear is the feeling of anxiety over possible evil in the future. The more grateful we are, the more we realize how good our life actually is, and the more, therefore, we grow in our faith in God to say, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Three, get around people of faith. There is a social dimension to faith. Twitter is not a place that builds up your faith. It's, it's also, Chappelle said, it's not a real place, which I think I agree with. But there are, there are certain, our, our Western culture as a whole is increasingly secular. It is not designed to increase our faith, but to decrease it. Fast becoming an intellectual minority, not the becoming, we are one in the wider culture. So when Jesus went to his home village, he could do no great miracles there, he said, because of their lack of faith. So living in a modern world can be very hard on our faith. It's essential that we do life together, not just in large rooms, but as Dana said, around tables. Fourth, ask God for more faith. Like faith is both like a muscle that we develop, but at a theological level, it's also a gift of God. Ask God to grow your faith muscle. Ask him to endow you with more faith by the Spirit of God. And if you don't have much faith, just make the man's prayer your own. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And then finally, just wait, wait. If you're living through a hard time, wait on God. Wait on the Lord. Tyler, that was such a beautiful teaching a few months ago. One of the greatest signs that we have faith is the ability to calmly wait for God to move in his time, in his way, for his purposes. But then there's passive spirituality, what the New Testament calls the test of faith. But this isn't a test at like Biola or Newport High where you, know, you study hard and you fill in the right answer and you get a grade at the end of it. It's more like a stress test. We have an engineer somewhere here in the room 
where an engineer tests a, a new car or a new piece of technology or where a blacksmith tests the metal or a chef tests a dish. It's a way to test the integrity or strength or quality of something to see what it's actually made of. Is this actually strong enough to go out into the world? Is it good enough? Is it ready yet? Does it have the proper qualities yet to be out in the open? Less for God, he already knows what's in our heart as far as I know, but more for us. We often don't know what's in our heart. When, we are, when our faith is tested, what we actually believe comes up to the surface. Really helpful little paradigm from a Catholic theologian named Michael Novak who writes about three levels of belief. He writes about our public belief. This is what we say we believe. This was Harvey Weinstein at the uh, ward a couple weeks before he was outed with the women's sticker on his lapel. Clearly not what he actually believed. That was his public belief. Then uh, we have our private belief, which is what we think we believe, what we genuinely think it. And then what Novak called our core belief, which is what we actually believe, but we rarely know is true until it's called into question. For example, um, we might not think that our identity is grounded in our job until we're fired. And then we find out what we actually believe. We might not think that our happiness comes from money until there's a recession and da 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 we don't have money to do this, that, or the other, and then we find out. We might not think that our happiness comes from our beauty until we age. And then our core belief comes up to the surface. This is what the test of faith does. It's a loving scalpel from God to say, this is what's actually in you. Will you give it back to me? Will you pray it back to me, Lord, have mercy? Our family went through a very painful experience um, just before we came down here. It's actually why we ended up down here. I have to keep it very ambiguous to honor some other people. Um, but we had a, a dream that we had been praying and working toward for about a decade, and it was finally coming true. I was full of so much joy, so much hope, so much excitement for the second half of my life. And then at the very last minute, all of our plans fell through. And I have to keep this very coy, uh, not because I don't trust you, but um, I don't know most of you, but. <laughs> um, but it, all of our plans fell through in a very heartbreaking and wounding way. And um, for the few years before this kind of blow up in my life, we were in a discernment process about where to kind of move um, after we left Portland and where to spend the second half of our life and what exactly to do with it. And all through that process, I would pray every single day, Lord, like, your will be done. Whatever you want for my life, like, just give me the next assignment. I, I am your servant. May it be to me according to your word. I made Mary's prayer my own, like the mother of God. It's a pretty good prayer, right? <laughs> And I genuinely thought that I meant it. I would pray, Lord, I just want whatever you have for me. And I was self-delusional enough to think that I really meant that. And I know there was part of me that meant that. But when our plan fell apart, which I thought was God's plan for our life, I mean, surely my plan must be his. Um, <laughs> it's a great plan. Uh, I still think it was a great plan. But the moment it was put into jeopardy, I was stricken by fear. 
And the moment it was taken away, I was devastated. Apatheia. I was nowhere even close. So it was so painful. It is still to this day so painful because it's been like a whole layer of what some would call my false self exposed and laid bare in all of its ugliness. And it's called for a whole new level of surrender. And that's really what Christian spirituality or discipleship to Jesus is all about. Take up your cross and follow me. I used to always think of the cross as active spirituality. I'm going to take up my cross. I'm going to die to self. I'm going to kill sin. <laughs> and there's, there's a time and a place for that. But I remember thinking a while back about the cross and thinking, you know, I've never died before. And so I, if so, I would have written a bestseller and it would just be, I'd be so rich right now. About <laughs> 90 minutes in heaven, man, I could write a good one. Um, I've never died before, so I don't know what it's like. But I imagine it feels less like something you do and more like something that's done to you. Less like an action and more like a surrender. This is really what the cross is all about. So how do we cooperate with God in our test of faith? Well, there's not a lot to do. Mostly we just surrender. We just pray over and over again and we pray that someday Jesus makes it true of our heart. God, not my will, but yours be done. Or Mary's prayer, I am the Lord's servant. May it be done to me according to your word and the good pleasure of your will. We give up the futile attempt to control what we cannot possibly control, which is most of life. I read recently the study that said the average American has 15% of the control over their life they think they have. That 85% is why we're all a disaster, right there. It's job security for therapists. It's, control is an illusion for the most part. It's a defense mechanism for fear. We let go, we surrender, and secondly, we stay faithful to Jesus. As he's been faithful to us in the valley of the shadow of death, we just keep walking with God. When we don't get it, when it doesn't make sense, when we feel alone, when we feel abandoned, we just keep walking with God, knowing that there are deserts and there are mountains and there are valleys and there is summer and there is winter and there is darkness and there is light. And even when we feel alone, we are never alone. Daniel Berrigan, the Jesuit priest and anti-war activist, was once asked, is faith, he was a Catholic, he was asked, is faith more in the head like Protestants believe or more in the heart like you Catholics believe? And he was a bit of a cheeky kind of 1960s character. And he said, neither. Faith's where your butt's at. Um, he didn't use the word butt, but I won't say that in a teaching. And I think what he meant by that was, faith is where your body is. Faith is about faithfulness. Are you and I living inside the contours of our commitments to Jesus and his call in our life? Can we do that day over week, over month? To stay faithful, we need grace and we need community. We need this table that we're about to come to. We surrender, we stay faithful. I'm gonna invite you just to um, take a moment and pray with me. Why don't you just close your eyes, clear off your lap. I know that was a bit long, I'm sorry. God, I just would ask you to come by the Holy Spirit. 
fill our mind, our heart, our body with your word to us. Why don't you, if you can, just kind of sit up and take a few just really deep, slow breaths in and out through your nose, just nice and slow. Even just imagine the pneuma is the Greek word for the spirit. It can also be translated the breath. Just breathe in the breath of God. I want to invite you just to ask the spirit of God, where am I in these three levels of faith? If you were to plot yourself, the faith of religion, the faith of desperation, the faith of surrender, with no judgment, no guilt, no shame, the compassionate, smiling eye of Jesus upon you. Just ask the Trinity, where, where am I in the journey of faith? Maybe for you, you're not even to the faith of religion yet. And now just ask the Spirit of God. Just let whatever comes to your mind come to mind. Don't feel like you have to interrogate it or it has to be right or wrong. Just open your mind to God. Ask the Spirit of God, what is the next step in the maturation of my faith? Is there an invitation from the Spirit of God to do something stop doing something, to believe something, to stop believing something. Just see what comes to mind. Holy Spirit, come. Shield our mind from the evil one. Fill our mind with your word. Before we go to the table, let me just pray this blessing over you, the doxology from Jude. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen.